when we don't see him at work, he is still at work. That he is able to find a way when with our human eyes we see no way. And we are thankful for that. Uh, today's scripture reading is going to come from the letter to a young pastor named Timothy, written by a guy named Paul. And we're going to take a look at the first chapter. We're going to read chapter 1, verse 3 through 5 together. So I invite you to turn over to 1 Timothy with me as we read a few verses together. Verse 3, 1 Timothy 1. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless, endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's a reading of God's word. You may be seated. As you are seated today, we do have Kingdom Kids, which is our ministry for those who have aged out of nursery, which is at four years old, through those who are in second grade. And so those who are four years old through second grade, they're going to meet our Kingdom Kids workers right over here. And of course, we do have nursery for those younger. And for those older, staying in the service, we do have some activity folders in the back where the lamp is uh, near the exit. You can grab one of those. And just by way of reminding, we are working through the New Testament together as part of a reading plan in which we are reading out of the uh, New Testament, also a reading from Psalms, a reading from Proverbs. And so we're working our way through and we're getting near the end here. And we are in what's called the uh, pastoral epistles. An epistle just is a fancy way of saying letter. We just got out of reading letters that Paul wrote. Uh, to churches while he was in prison. We call those the prison epistles. And these are the pastoral epistles because here we're reading a guy named Paul writing to other pastors, particularly two. And we're taking a look at one of them, which is his letter to Timothy. And he writes to Timothy two letters that we have in the scriptures, this one, and then we'll take a look at 2 Timothy next week. So just a little heads up on where we're at with all of that. And I'm excited to share with you from 1 Timothy today. We're going to journey all around this uh, six-chapter letter. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I encourage you to open it to 1 Timothy. Uh, Or if you have a uh, Bible app on your phone, a great tool, open that up. Because we're going to be kind of in and out of uh, Timothy here this morning. So you're going to see a bunch of of different verses that we're going to talk about. So let's just pause. Let's pray together. And then we'll dive into this uh, great letter. Father God, thank you for your scriptures, that you have inspired humans to write down your words to us, that you have a message to us, not only in, throughout the entirety of the Bible, but you have something to say to us now, today, through this particular letter. God, you want to speak to us, and I pray that you'd help us to have ears that are ready to hear what you have to say, that you would help us to soften our hearts to receive it and ready our hands and feet to live it. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, I think this is a a timely opportunity to talk about this letter from a seasoned pastor like Paul to uh, his uh, protege in the faith, Timothy. Uh, Timothy uh, was most likely saved under the ministry of Paul and accompanied Paul on missionary journeys. In fact, as 
is we were reading through what, we, what I mentioned earlier, the prison epistles. A lot of times Paul would reference Timothy in his address and say, hey, this is from all of us because Timothy was a true partner in ministry with Paul. And now Paul has sent him to the city of Ephesus to help them grow in their faith and to be a shepherd. So he's, he sent this pastor into this community to help the church to grow. And so that's kind of what we're going to look at. But as I said, I think it's a timely opportunity to take a look at first Timothy because as I shared with you guys a few weeks ago, you know, Marsh and I are anticipating a move at the end of this year that, uh, our association in the next couple of weeks, are going to be voting on me as a director of missions for our two associations, Gambrel, of which we're a part, and Gonzalez, which is a little north of us, all the way up to areas like uh, LaGrange and Smithville. And so it's a pretty big area. And so we have sensed this call. We have responded to the Lord's leadership on this call. And the last kind of part of that is for these two associations to vote. And uh, I don't know, I was running around, so I don't know if Rosemary mentioned it, but I do want to encourage you to put on your calendar October 22nd. That's, uh, you know, several Sundays from now. That's when we're going to have our Gambrel annual meeting. It's going to be at 4 o'clock at First Baptist Church in Nixon. And during the business section, they're going to they're gonna vote on me for the role of director of missions. And then the following week, no, the week prior, Gonzalez will have already voted. So that will be the last official vote. So this has been a tough uh, thing for us to consider. And we did not and still do not want to leave our community and our church. And so we have struggled with that uh, mightily and continue to struggle and ask for your prayers because we're trying to walk in the Lord's will. And there's just so much that we don't know and so much challenge in front of us. But we know there's also blessings in front of us. And I was thinking about that when we were singing this song, Waymaker, that God makes a way, you know, and and that's one of the huge blessings music is to us, isn't it? it? It touches our heart in pretty amazing ways. So. I just want to remind you guys of that. Some of you, may, maybe you didn't know that. Maybe this is your first you're hearing about it. Uh, most of you have heard that news already. Um, and I, I want to just kind of share a couple things about that and, and show you how I feel like this letter to Timothy uh, is really profound for us in this season as a church family. Um, one is that our search committee is not formed yet to find a new pastor. We have a church council and we have a nominating committee. Together, they will put together names for the church to consider voting on to form what's called a pastor search committee. And then at a, at a business meeting, probably we'll do a special call business meeting so that we don't have to wait in between because our business meetings are only once a month. Uh, they'll also ask if there's any recommendations from the floor to add to the list of names to vote on a pastor search committee. And that will be considered as well. And then you as a church family will decide on who will be on that. Some, some of you, many of you, will be asked to serve on that. And I think that what Paul has to say to Timothy about uh, those who serve in this position uh, is, a, is a great benefit to you. And it should be your guidelines as you look for a new pastor. But as a church body, you have a, pl- a role to play in that as well. Not only should you be praying for your pastor search committee, praying for the new pastor that comes... But you in a Baptist church, I know not everybody here is from a Baptist church and you may not have this background, but in a Baptist church, you as a member of the church, if you are a member, you have a significant role to play in this as well because you will be voting affirmatively or negatively on a new pastor. The search committee will bring to you a recommendation and you as a church will either approve or deny that recommendation. All right. So that's kind of how it works for those who don't know. This can take some time. This can take up to a year, a year and a half. Uh, it's really in the Lord's timing as much as we want to be on the ball and 
and do everything we can. It's in the Lord's timing when, Lord prepare, when the Lord's going to prepare the next uh, pastor to come and be your pastor. And, uh, and I, I'm anxious for that day and, and believing that based on uh, the, the maturity and wisdom of our church, that you're all going to do a great job finding someone to lead you in this next season of life. And, uh, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm excited that I get to be a director of missions and be a part of that in a very small way, more as a witness and an encourager along that journey, and even be able to come back and share God's word with you from time to time as, as the pulpit needs to be filled. And, uh, and I'm thankful for that. But I want you to think about it through that lens. Um, that you, as a, if you're a church member, you may be on that committee. That you, as a member of the church, you will definitely play a role in voting on that new pastor. And consider what Paul has to say about what it means to be a pastor. And what the pastor's role is to be. And so that's kind of how I want you to think about that, okay? And I want us to take a journey through Timothy that's going to help us kind of see that. I'm going to start out with some of the most difficult things that Paul has to say. Because we didn't read it, and because I, I didn't want to shock you and then, you know, say something, and then all the kids have to leave, and they're like, what was that about? So uh, I held off on that, but I want to start with this idea that the pastor of the church is to be a, a godly man. The pastor to lead a church should be a godly man. And if you're listening closely to that, you may say, well, what about a godly woman? And I would say, well, that's a very good question. And I think Paul addresses that question. And I think we ought to look at what Paul says and what the Word of God says to see what scripture says. Now, when we read it, first of all, we got to unpack what Paul says. We have to unpack it to understand it. Because at first reading, oftentimes when we read the Bible, we can't help but read the Bible through our cultural lens. It's like telling a fish that there is water and a fish is wet. They don't even know. That's the world they swim in. And we all have that cultural lens which, with which we come to the Bible. And the more aware of that we are, the better off we are because we can see where there are going to be times where our cultural lens may cause us to misinterpret Scripture. And so we want to be careful about that. And also realizing that the Bible always has something to say to critique the cultural currents. Because, and that's what you would expect. If God gave us His Word and it was from Him, wouldn't you expect... That in every day and age, in every culture, throughout history, there would be something that God says that the rest of culture has a hard time getting along with. Wouldn't you expect that? I would expect that. And that is what we see. But I will tell you this. As always, this is always the case. Not just here when we talk about these things, but this is always the case. Is that you have a responsibility as a Christian to read the Word of God, study the Word of God... And come to prayerful conclusions on difficult issues like the one we're briefly going to cover today. So I do not expect I will tell you what the Bible says and you should just believe it and go with it. I think you ought to hear it with open ears. And then if you don't, if I don't make a convincing case from scripture, that you ought to go and read scripture for yourself and study it for yourself. Even if I make a convincing case, go and see, right? That's your job as a Christian. It's not your job as a Christian to be yes men and yes women to whatever the pastor or teacher or Sunday school teacher says. That should never be your role. Your role should always be that of what we read about in, in Acts, the Bereans, who received from Paul the word of God, but then they went and searched the scriptures for themselves. That's, that's our position as Christians. We hear and we receive gladly the word of God, and then we say, okay, let me go search it for myself. Okay, So that's my preface to what I'm about to read to you out of Timothy as we try to unpack this. All right. 
So look at chapter 2 with me, all right? First Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Paul says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, raise your hand if you have a question about what Paul just said. (laughs) I have studied this passage for years. And I have come to different conclusions throughout the years. I will share with you where I landed uh, well over, you know, almost two decades now, where I landed on my understanding of this passage. But even as I approached it anew, I said, well, let me go back. Let me study again. Let me read what I've read before. Let me read new resources that have come out to help me unpack what God's word says. And so I've done that. And my conclusion is the same as it's been for the past couple decades, which is that God calls godly men to lead the church. Now, I say that and also say our church would not exist without godly women. We just would not, you know, all the way down from top to bottom. We would not be in existence today if it were not for godly women. So let me just say that. But what is Paul trying to get at here? Likely there's a situation happening in the church that has given Paul a reason to write this. We know that there are issues with false doctrine being taught. He even names a couple of the people who are doing it. Both are men, by the way. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm already giving them over to the, to the enemy for the enemy to deal with them because they are teaching falsely. And so you already see that current coming through. You also, uh, if you study the background of Ephesus, know that they had, you know, they had uh, cults there in Ephesus. They had temples in which they went to worship and they worshiped other gods. And the main god that was there in Ephesus was a fertility goddess. And, and, and so it was a female god, a goddess, and people would go and worship the female goddess of fertility. And, and what would you expect the goddess of fertility would bless you with? With abundance from your crops to your harvest to your, uh, to your goats and your cows and your oxen all giving birth, uh, good harvest, even into your family, which is one of the most important aspects that, that the fertility goddess would bless your family, that you'd have more and more children. And so who ran that temple but female, uh, female priests or priestesses? And, and so you had this cultural connection where there were women who were used to having this kind of authority in a godless kind of way, right? And so I think there's something to that that Paul is addressing here because that has seeped into the church. But I want to start with this positive affirmation that we should not miss, that Paul is saying affirmatively that women should learn. That this is an affirmative message. And you see this in Jesus' ministry all the way through. He affirms women. He receives women as disciples. He teaches them. And we know the story of Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister. And you had uh, Martha rushing around trying to get things done. And you have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus learning. And Jesus says in the end, she has chosen what is better, to sit at my feet and learn. Now, that was, that was just not any kind of, you know, like we have open small groups. Come anytime. Come, sit and learn. That, that was more of an official role as a disciple of a rabbi to be in his school to learn so that one day you could go out and teach what you have learned. So to be a disciple of a rabbi was a really big deal. And Paul is saying we can look at the negative here. We can interpret it through our, our cultural lens. But understand what he's saying is actually very positive. 
And it is cultural. It is uh, against the culture of his time because you did not have women sitting at the feet of rabbis learning. And so Paul is saying affirmatively that women should have the opportunity to come and learn. That their role as a disciple of Jesus is to be a learner every bit as much as it is the role of a man. So I don't want to miss that, that this is actually a positive, affirmative thing. But I think what's playing into it is that some women in that particular church were trying to take over roles of leadership that did not belong to them. Even if they did it in the most loving and positive way, Paul is clearly saying, I think, that that, that is not for them. That, that role is not for them. That specifically that teaching authoritative leadership role. And what role is that? That is the role of your pastor. Above all things that we do as a pastor is we preach and teach God's word in addition to praying for God's people. And to have that kind of role and authority in the life of a church, Paul is showing us that God has called men into that role. And he says, you know, we had a situation where men did not step up and take that responsibility seriously. And a woman stepped, uh, did take that authority in the life of that husband-wife relationship. And because one abandoned the post and one took up the post, things didn't go well. And that's what he references here. He's talking about for Adam was sworn first and then Eve. He's saying there's a natural order that God has created for the husband to lead his family and for a qualified godly man to lead the church. Now, I'm saying that and I understand not everybody here is going to agree with what I'm saying. And again, I would say search the scriptures for yourself, studying them. See what they say and accept what God has to say to you, even if it goes. Because I will tell you, I approached this uh, early on as a young Christian uh, on the total opposite spectrum. What convinced me that is godly leadership in the position of a pastor was the study of God's word. Now, you may study God's word and come to a different conclusion. And hey, God bless you. All right. I just want to share with you my understanding and how I've arrived at it. And this is one of those pivotal passages. And so he says, there's a natural order to things. Adam came first and then Eve. And, 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 but what happened was, it wasn't Adam who was deceived by the serpent. Now, this is in between the lines, but we know the story from Genesis. Adam's role was he did not step up and take proper leadership in, the, in that family structure with his wife Eve. Adam was given the instruction, don't eat of the fruit. It was Adam's job to lead his wife into the commands of God, and he failed to do that. That was his failure. He failed to take the proper leadership. But Eve stepped, stepped in and did take improper leadership in this, in this case, and she did eat of the fruit, and she did bring it to her husband, and her husband followed her in that sin. And so he's pointing that out. He's saying there's a natural order of things. We've seen it go poorly in the past. Don't let that take place in, in the church in the present. And then he has this strange thing. It sounds strange, but I think it, it actually makes quite a bit of sense. I'll clear it up and then we'll move on. All right. But he says, uh, he says, the woman became a sinner. Of course, we know the man did too, but he's making a particular argument. And he says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue faith, love, holiness with propriety. Now that's very confusing, isn't it? Okay, so... One thing we see that takes place is when sin enters the world, God holds Adam and Eve both responsible. Even though, even though Eve was the one deceived by the serpent, it's Adam's fault as well. Adam shares in the guilt, so they are both cursed by God. And, and that, might say, that might sound harsh, but let's just understand. Just imagine a world without law and order. Imagine a, rule, a, a, a world where there is law, but no one enforces the law. Do you want to live in that world? I do not want to live in that world. 
I want to live in a world where there is law and then there's people who enforce the, the, the law, right? And, and God is the one who gives us all. He's the one who gives us government. And he, that's, that's part of his role in this world is to assign those positions, right? And so, but at this time, it's him. And he says, this is what I want you to do. And then they didn't do it. And he said, okay, well, there's got to be consequences to that. You're not going to get off scot-free. So he says, Adam, you're going to go to work and it's going to be hard. And men testify and say, yes. Of course, women do too, right? And God said, Eve, you're going to bear children and it's going to be hard. And all the women would say, amen, it's no picnic. And the men would say, I'm glad I got my curse and not your curse, right? So what he's saying here is, yes, Adam, uh, Eve is a sinner, just as Adam is. But he says, Eve is a sinner. But guess what? She's going to persevere through that curse. And she still has salvation on the other end if she is a Christian. That's what he's saying. He's saying the end of her is not her sin. Adam or Eve, but in this particular case, he's, he's addressing Eve. The end of Eve is not her sin. She will be saved even though she goes through that process of painful childbearing. She's going to go through that curse, but she herself will not be lost to that curse. She will have hope ever after if she is a Christian. That's what he's saying if she, if she continues in faith and love and holiness with propriety. That's what he's pointing out. If she's a Christian... Even though she has to suffer the curse, just as men, we go to work and we suffer the curse. And of course, women are a part of that too. We, we suffer that. But that doesn't indicate that we are without hope, right? You're going to get through it. Here's the big point that I would try to make to you. Study it for yourselves. Come to your own conclusion. But I think here and in other places, uh, God is saying, I have a created order. I brought about man first for a reason. Not because he's better. Not because he's more capable or qualified. Because I chose that there will be a man who would serve his family by leading and serve the church by leading. And then I chose for women to come alongside because man cannot do it alone. But they together form a partnership in the marriage. And we see that beautifully illustrated in the church as we think about both men and women serving in the church and how we could not do it without each other. We have super important roles. No one's more important than the other, but they don't look the same, right? That's the overall, I think, the overall teaching of Scripture. So if I can encourage you, if you're on that search committee or if you're voting, I would look for a godly man to lead your church. Now, I say godly because it's not just any fellow, right? They've got to be called and qualified to take on the role. And that gets us to the second thing. I should say this. I've got three things I want to cover. We just covered the first. Uh, Godly man. The second part is about character. The godly part, right? Not just anybody should serve in the role of leadership. And this actually forms a good basis of of a lot of what Paul talks about in this letter. He is trying to encourage Timothy as a leader, and he's trying to point out what leadership should look like. And so he says to him, uh, I'm going to skip that part. Let me me get to chapter 3, because this is is the part that we often hear, uh, and it's worth reading. He gets to a part in chapter 3 where he says, let me lay out for you what godly leadership in the church looks like. And he gives two distinct offices here. One is... Uh, The elder, which in some translations it is bishop. In other places you'll read it as overseer. And in other places you'll you'll distinctly see they have a shepherding role. Now what that tells me, all of these different ways are, are just different ways of talking about the same kind of role, which is the role of what we today typically use for the, the role we talk about when we say pastor. Typically is encompassing these other roles of elder, overseer, bishop, And different faith denominations do this differently, okay? I know some of you understand that. You came from different different faith denominations, and you know that. But I just want to read for you what Paul says. And I think this 
is this is what we need to look for in a new pastor is is this stuff right here. He says, starting in chapter one of 1 Timothy three, he says, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, aspire, uh, desires, excuse me, a noble task. He says, now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. I'm so glad my kids aren't in here right now. They're over in Kingdom Kids. That's okay. All right. Uh, And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. What is he saying here? What I find interesting is what he doesn't say. He doesn't give a job description with tasks. He gives, he paints a picture of a man's character. That that comes first. If you have to choose, and of course you don't, but if you had to choose, go with character above competency. Go with the godly man who may not be the best preacher or the best leader or the best moderator for a business meeting. Maybe they're not great at all that stuff, but here is a godly man. Now, I hope and pray you will find both. But I will tell you, every pastor will have their weaknesses. They will have things like some are good at preaching, some are good at leading, some are really good at pastoral care. Those are kind of the three big things that a pastor does. I doubt you're going to find a pastor that makes straight A's on all three. You're probably going to find one that's good at a couple and maybe not so good at one, right? I know that's the case for me. There's just some stuff I'm just not good at. I wish I was, but I'm just not. And I have to lean on you as a church family to help me, right? But what we can't compromise on is the man's character. Who he is matters more than what he does. Now, what he does matters a lot. But who he is matters even more. That's why I think Paul gives this description of this elder, this pastor, and barely mentions any kind of, he does this and this and this. You do see in there he talks about teaching. But vast majority of what he talks about is the man's character. Look for a person of character. So that's the, that's the second thing. First thing, a godly man. The second thing is, we've now discussed it, what that godly kind of looks like according to Paul. The third thing that I want to cover is that it should be a hardworking pastor who knows how to plow, plant, water, and weed. And I'm going to break that down because that was a lot to take in, I know, all right? Uh, You see in here, Paul talks about this, that, that someone who is in this role, even he himself, should be someone who strives and works hard. We see that throughout the Bible. We talked about that in, in 2 Thessalonians, that there is something good and biblical about being a hard worker. But what is that work? We understand, I think, from Scripture, your character matters more, but there are some things the pastor does that they need to do, and they need to do it as well as they can, and they need to labor in that and work at that and do the best they can. What are those things? Uh, you can talk about from the vantage point of a shepherd, But I'm going to talk about today from the vantage point of a gardener. Um, What does a good gardener do? Well, the first thing a good gardener does is they've got to prepare the ground, right? 
You can't just assume the soil is ready for the seed. You've got to prepare the ground. And then once the ground is ready, you've got to plant those seeds. But then you don't just walk away and hope for the best, right? Those seeds are in the ground. Now you've got to water those seeds. Make sure they get enough water or they will not make it, right? Now, I should probably stop and say, I do not have a green thumb. Whatever, the, if it, maybe it's a black thumb. The color of death, that's what I have, all right? So, so I, I'm speaking a little out of school here, but these are the basics, okay? We're just trying to cover the basics, okay? So, so a good gardener prepares the soil, plants the seed, waters the seed. But what happens when you water the ground? Are you only going to get what you planted? No, you're going to get some weeds too, right? So you got a weed. So you've got to plow, you've got to plant, you've got to water, and you've got to weed. This is pastoral work 101, all right? And I'm going to give you just some stuff you probably already know. But in case you don't, what is the work? And I'm not just telling you this. I think you're going to see we find it here in this letter to Timothy. Because again, Paul is trying to encourage his protege to do a really good job pastoring this church in Ephesus as he's going through some tough things. Okay, We'll get into a little bit of that now. First thing is to plow. You prepare the soil to accept the seed. A good pastor will start with relationships, preparing hearts to receive the word. That it starts with that desire to love people, both in his church and in his community. Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 5. We read it. He, he, he says, and we're going to get to this in a second when we talk about weeding. But he says, listen, uh, I put you there because there's trouble. I need you to take care of it. And then he says this. This is the goal. The goal isn't to have a totally pure, no one sins, everybody's a Christian church. That's, uh, that's unreasonable. That's never going to happen. That's not the goal. Paul says the goal of you being there and, and doing the weeding that we'll talk about here in a moment is love. That's the goal. Not so that you can be in charge. Not so that you can call the shots. Not so you can feel big and bad and powerful. You know, Not so that you can create a, a cult of religiously pure people. The goal is love. That's what he says in chapter five or chapter one, verse five. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a, and a sincere faith. Early on in the letter, Paul sets this tone. Your work is born of love. How do you plow the ground that others may receive the soil? Isn't the best way to get your message across is to be a messenger who is known to love the one in, in whom the, the message is being given? If you want the best shot of the message being heard, isn't that going to happen when people know you care about them, that you matter to them? And a good pastor is going to show that, that whatever they're doing, even as if it's correcting, even as they teach and preach, even as they make hospital visits and home visits, that they're doing that from a place of love. Now, a little bit broader than that, but I think gets to the same exact thing under the idea of plowing is that Paul gets into these different relationships in which the pastor's going to have. Pastor's going to have a relationship with people older than them. Pastor's going to have a relationship with people younger than them. They're going to have a relationship with guys. They're going to have a relationship with gals. You're going to have a relationship with a wide variety of people. And he explains to them, here's how I want you to relate to all these folks. I'm not going to read all that, but it's in chapter 5, first 16 verses. You can read it for yourself. Maybe not now, if you don't mind. But go and read that and you'll see. Why is he doing that? Because he says, your job is to care for people. Let me give you some thoughts about how to do that well. So we start with the idea of plowing. If we want people to receive the word of God, whether they're Christians and they need to be discipled, 
Are there people who are not Christians and they need to hear the gospel? The very best way to do that is to start by caring about them, by loving them, right? But the second thing is planting. We do have some planting to do. One other thing just kind of dawned on me. Let me mention this. One other thing I think is fascinating. When you read the uh, description of a pastor or elder or overseer in chapter 3, and then right after that you read about deacons, what's interesting to me is when you read about all that stuff, Almost all of it applies to every Christian. Leaders should exemplify. Uh, But almost everything a pastor or elder does is expected of every Christian. With probably the only exception I can think of is the pastor does have a unique job in which they are to teach and preach God's word. And not every Christian is expected to do it at the same level as a pastor does it in front of a congregation and so on and so forth. Though there is, a, there is, if you're a parent, you are expected to teach your children the Word of God, right? But if you got up and preached to them, that might be a bit much, you know, I don't know. Depending on your family, around dinner, I don't know. They may like that. I don't If you're a good preacher, I don't know. But point being is that what we're going to see here is that this, this seed sowing is your job as well as it is the pastor's job. You prepare the ground, but what's going to go in the ground? What are the seeds we are to plant in our families, in our communities, in the church? It's the gospel seeds. It's the gospel seeds. We are to plant seeds of truth, of love, to let people see the hope that we have in Jesus. So Paul says this. This is an interesting little section in Timothy, chapter 2. Look at this with me. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Timothy says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, which is a way of asking God for things, prayers, intercession, intercession, praying for other people, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Now, let me pause. What does he say? He says, I want you to pray for those in authority, and I want you to live peaceful and quiet lives that are marked by godliness and holiness. And then he gets to the why that is important part of this section, of this paragraph. He says, this is good and pleases God our Savior, verse 3. Why? Verse 4. Who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. There is a seed in which we sow, and it is that last few verses. We have a God, we have a mediator between God and mankind, and that is Jesus Christ. And it is he who delivers us out of sin into eternal life. That is our seed. That is our message. That is our hope. That is what you should be sowing in your life. And that is what the pastor must be sowing in the life of the congregation and in the life of the community. That's the seed. And so he's saying, that's what I want you to do. What gets in the way of that seed, he mentions here, you know, all, a prayerlessness gets in the way of, of, of casting that seed. Getting caught up in other things that don't matter get in the way of, plant, of uh, casting that seed, planting that seed. Uh, living, living lives that aren't focused on the Lord gets in the way of us planting that seed. So you and the pastor must have this approach to the work of planting seeds that, that God has called me to this. 
There is good news to share. And I don't want my life to get in the way of that. And I think that's partly why Paul spends so much time talking about the character of a pastor is because the pastor's character can get in the way of him planting seeds. Same is true with you as a congregation member, as a Christian. The way you live your life can get in the way of your seed sowing. There has to be some alignment there so that when the seed is sown, there's a greater opportunity for it to grow. But once that seed is sown, the work is not over. I can't just preach and tell people about Jesus. It requires follow-up conversations and walking with people and talking with people and praying for people. All that work, there's watering that comes too. So you got to sow. you got to plant the seeds. But you also have to water. Now this gets to uh, something kind of interesting is that Paul uses the word teach in some variety 13 times in this one little letter. So the pastor's role in watering, near if not at the top of the list, comes the role of teaching and preaching. It's got to be someone who can teach or preach sound doctrine. We're going to get to that at the close here. But listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how, pe- how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation. What does that look like? Well, he says a little bit later in chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. So when it comes to the pastor's role of watering the seeds they plant, often enough it's going to come through the preaching and teaching of God's word that points people back not to his opinion, but to God's truth. Because the scripture is how we, how we arrive at God's truth. We can talk, we can reason, we can read widely, and all that's very good and important. But we must wrestle with what God has said in the Bible. That is our truth. And when the pastor desires to water the seeds he's sown, it's going to come through the teaching and preaching, not of his opinion, not of someone else's opinion, but his best understanding of the word of God. That's how he's going to water the congregation. And you see that that's directly something that Paul expected of Timothy was that faithful teaching and preaching so that God's people might grow. And then the final thing. Unfortunately, being a pastor requires some weeding. Uh, I know some pastors that are good at that and they like doing that. I'm not one of them. Uh, In fact, I'd say if I had to guess, most pastors don't enjoy the work of weeding. It's unpleasant. You care about people. Most pastors typically be, they're people pleasers. They want everybody to be happy with them. They want everybody to like them. They don't want their pastor to come and say, I think you're a weed and it's time for some pruning around here. You know, and I, and I don't think a good pastor would say it that, that way. But there's going to be some weeds. And, and I'll, I'm not trying to put that like as, as people, but there's just always going to be some weeds that you have to be able, you have to be able to face that and deal with it to the best of your ability, with the help of God, with a heart of love, with a desire to see someone grow and be discipled. But there's going to be some weeds. In fact, that is largely why Timothy is in Ephesus. That is a big reason why Paul wrote this letter. It's how he starts things off in verse, or in chapter 1, in verse 3. We read it together. 
As I urged you when I went with you into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. What is he saying? He's saying there's weeding to be done in Ephesus. Don't shy away from that. That's important work. Because guess what happens when you do all of that work to plow and all of that work to sow the seeds and all of that work to water it? You're going to get weeds. And if you don't deal with the weeds, what's going to happen? It's going to choke out your garden. The things God desires to grow cannot grow because there's too many weeds. And so this is true of all of our lives, obviously. But in this context, Paul is talking about the work of pastoring requires you to do things like combat false teaching with true teaching. That's part of what it requires. Part of that work is to, is to hold people accountable and talk to people about hard things and, and encourage those who are struggling to, 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 to not give up and, and give opportunity for people who may be content sitting in the pew and they're not, not serving. Like, that's all part of the work. And, and I'll be honest, it's, it's not an easy part of the work for me, but I know it's an important part of the work. But perhaps at the top of the list of the important weeding that a pastor must do is a pastor has to teach sound doctrine. It's interesting, that word, sound doctrine, is only found uh, six times in the New Testament. In fact, six times in in all of the Bible. Only six times is sound doctrine found. Guess where they're found? They're all found in the pastoral epistles. As far as I can tell, the only time that we see sound doctrine or the word doctrine itself used is when Paul is talking to pastors about the work. Doctrine means teaching. Sound doctrine means true teaching. False doctrine means uh, false teaching, right? And this is an important part of pastoral work that Paul points out to Timothy. Why? Because as someone has said, ideas have consequences. And if there's ideas that are untrue, that take root in our hearts, that's going to have consequences. And what roots out those untrue things are the true things of the Bible. And while we have a responsibility individually to read, study, meditate, memorize the Bible so that we can understand it for ourselves. So your pastor has an outside responsibility as a member of the church to teach and preach sound doctrine from God's word. Why? Because he cares for your soul. That he wants to see you flourish. He wants to see you grow. He wants to protect you from the weeds that are around you. I don't, I don't mean weeds as in people. The Bible says that we do not fight against flesh and blood. We're talking about uh, we have an enemy who sows those uh, weeds among us. And we have to be, we have to be uh, thoughtful and cautious and, and mindful about what we listen to. Where we're learning things and what books we read. What podcasts And what preachers on TV, y'all, we have to be careful about that just as Christians because bad ideas have bad consequences. And and I hope and pray you will find a pastor that takes that weeding seriously to teach and preach the doctrine of truth from God's word because he loves you. Why? Because this is the last thing I'll share. I know we're we're past time, but you you can't fire me now. I'm on on the way out. So you just got to deal with it. But, But... but the pastor is supposed to be a representative of God to you. Now, you don't need an intermediary. I'm not saying that. 
I'm saying his work is to bring you the truth of God's word and to help you unpack it and help you to live it. It's not his responsibility alone. You have a lot of that responsibility yourself as an individual Christian, but it's why he's here, right? So it should be reflective of a God who loves you. A God who loves you so much he wouldn't allow us to live in our sins. A God who loves us so much he would say, yes, you have no hope within it, in and of yourself, but I have hope for you. A God who says, I'm not comfortable just sitting in heaven watching you struggle on earth. I'm going to come down there. And then when God does come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, he doesn't come to, to berate us, to get on to us, to fuss at us, though we deserve it. When God steps into human flesh, what do we see? We see a man dying for those who hate him. That's what Jesus did. And make no mistake about it. Before I was a Christian, I was on that side. Paul talks about it in this letter. You know who I once was. I persecuted the church. None of us, none of us can say, well, thank goodness Jesus is here. I've always been team Jesus. Not true. The Bible teaches us clearly we were all enemies of God. How did God turn his enemies into his friends? Came into this world to die for. I hope you know that hope. Because that's not just hope that will pull you through today. That's hope that gives you peace for an eternity. And if you don't know it, you can know it. The Bible's clear. Let today be the day of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord. Confess your sins. Trust Jesus. And you will be saved. It's not dependent on how strong your faith is. How active your faith is. It is dependent on the object of your faith. And that is Jesus. Do you have that faith? Let's pray. Father God, we just, uh, can I give thanks for Paul and Timothy? We get to see their lives opened up before us and see how they work so well to, together. And they wanted the same thing, that the church would have strong and godly leadership. That the gospel of Jesus may take root in the church. And may spread from there and to the ends of the world. We want the same thing today. Help us to look for that leader. And help us to be those kinds of people, those Christians through whom you work. That more and more may know the joy of having Christ at the center of their life. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, I invite you to stand with me as we close. If you need prayer, I'll be down front. I'd love to pray with you. Uh, respond to the Lord however he leads right where you're at. But let's make sure we respond. Amen.